at this time of year, with the, with the election just going through, you know, we're watching a lot of people ascending to the podium and uh, accepting nominations, accepting uh, election results, accepting whatever they're accepting. Also, after the first of the year, we're going to have a spectacle of the Academy Awards and all different sorts of award shows. And you got people coming up to the podium and accepting awards. And invariably, a certain amount of people are going to come up and say, I am humbled to accept this award. You know, it really humbles me to accept this award. I've always wondered at that phrase. What the heck does that mean? I'm humbled to accept this award. Now, if you look at the word humble as a verb, it means to reduce in station or importance or rank. If you look at it as an adjective, it means having a low station administratively, economically, socially. It means to have a low opinion or sense of your station or rank. So how does standing up in front of millions of people on a television screen and accepting an award, how does that humble you? I've never quite understood that. And I was, I was thinking, okay, yeah, they're just saying that. They're just, you know, making nice. And it sounds like a good thing to say. Everybody wants to be humble. But not really. We really want to be accepting the award, don't we? But what is it that they're trying to do? What is it? You know, I can imagine that they're probably saying, okay, this is a sobering moment. This is a moment where I'm accepting maybe a certain amount of responsibility as an elected official. You know, it's a sobering moment because so many people voted for me for an award or whatever it is. But instead of the jubilation that you might feel, it kind of is moving in the other direction. So I can see that sobering moment, a moment filled with gratitude. You know, gratitude. Not so much the sense of what I did, but the sense of people recognizing it. A mindfulness, a sense of mindfulness that you're really present and you're really here. Maybe a sense of responsibility for what's coming. So all those things are really good. And I think maybe that's where they're headed. But is that being humble? Is that humility? Now we consider humility good, but it's not really valued or cultivated in our culture, if you think about it. It's just the opposite. The people that we really lionize are people that we really hold up, the people that we give awards to and elect to office, you know, are the ones who are usually larger than life, the bombastic ones, the ones that exude all this confidence and ability to perform. Maybe they're a bit arrogant or domineering, but that's a good thing because they're our arrogant guy and domineering guy who's going to fight for our rights and fight for what we want to see. And so when you really look at it, we say that humility is good. It's in our Christian culture. Jesus talked about humility all the time. We give lip service to it. We know we're supposed to be humble. But I think there's this tension. There's this fighting back and forth between humility or not. Maybe we consider humility not being proud, not being haughty, not being arrogant, and we don't like those things. So that works. But is humility a poor self-image? Is that what we mean by humility? To think less of oneself. To think ourselves not as good as somebody else. Is that what humility really is? See, the trouble with that, if you have a negative thought about yourself, guess what you're still doing? You're still thinking about yourself. Even if it's negative or if it's positive, if you're thinking about yourself, is that really what humility is all about? Brendan Manning put it perfectly in the book Ruthless Trust. He said, humility is not having a low opinion of yourself. Humility is having no opinion of yourself because you so rarely think about yourself. 
You're focused on others. You're focused on God. You're focused someplace else, but you're not focused on self. And that changes everything. I found a great little... See if I can find it now. I have these things out of order. little definition from the Urban Dictionary. Did you know there's an Urban Dictionary? It's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of colloquial and kind of streetwise and everything. But in the Urban Dictionary under humility, there's this little entry. I envy humble people. If I told a humble person what I thought about people with humility, they'd probably not even recognize themselves as humble and ask why I'm calling them that. Too bad. I don't know any humble people. I just thought that was great. You know? Maybe as soon as you know you're humble, as soon as you say you're humble, you're not humble anymore. (laughs) You know? Does a humble person even know that he or she is humble? Or is that part of the quality of being humble is that you don't even really think about those things in terms of yourself? Maybe humility is a complete letting go of self-consciousness, a complete letting go about thought, about self. Right? So, a good opinion of yourself we call pride. Right? A low opinion of yourself we call neurotic. But this no opinion of ourselves is I guess what we can start calling humble. Now why is that a good thing though? Why is it a good thing that we are humble? Why is it a good thing that we have no opinion of ourselves, that we don't focus on ourselves? Just because Jesus said so? Well, that's not a bad reason, but let's dig in a little bit and find out why Jesus said so. If you take a look at Matthew 11, and you can look in your your bulletins, or Brandon's going to get it up on the screens. Matthew 11 at verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is making a connection here, and it's one that we can't miss if we're really going to understand what humility is all about. Now, the word he uses there is, I am gentle, meek. And we can connect that to the third beatitude. Remember that one? Blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a theme that runs through all of Jesus' teaching, but it's also a theme that runs through the entire Jewish tradition for thousands of years in the tradition. And then he says, I'm not only gentle, I'm not only meek, but I'm also humble, but humble in heart. And that phrase there is really connecting with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that term poor in spirit really throws us. And we've done this exercise in here before. I've asked you, what does poor in spirit mean to you? And this is what usually comes back. Someone who's lacking in spiritual gifts. Someone who is not spiritual. Someone who is maybe lost in their thinking in some way. We listen and we hear the words poor in spirit and we think of the negative. We think of something that's wrong. Something that's lacking. But why would Jesus say you're blessed? And why would Jesus say that you will inherit the kingdom? You will enter the kingdom. The kingdom is yours if you are poor in spirit. And it turns out that poor in spirit, miskina ruch in in Aramaic, is an idiom. It's an idiomatic phrase that means a sense of poverty, even if you're rich. Obviously, we would say not not domineering, not arrogant, not overbearing. We would say gentle and meek. It's the same thing. To be humble in heart, 
to be poor in spirit. Jesus is bringing all these threads together. And then he says, if we take on his yoke, if we take on his mantle, if we take on his way of doing things, and if we learn from him this way of doing things. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He said, if we take on this yoke, if we learn the unforced rhythms of grace, don't you love that? The unforced rhythms of grace. Not trying to pound square pegs into round holes. Not trying to make things fit and make things work. But learn these rhythms. The motion of the Spirit. To flow with is really what he's talking about. Then we'll find rest for our souls. So being humble is somehow restful. Somehow gives rest to our very souls. And how does that work? See, Jesus is tapping into a really deep and ancient Jewish tradition. And people that he are listening to him, the people of that tradition, would connect those dots, even though we really don't. Take a look at Psalms 37. This is just one example of so many in the Old Testament where a certain word comes up that is going to help us to be able to dial in what Jesus is talking about. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. What is he really saying there? First of all, the word at the end there, the humble, is a specific Hebrew word, anav, or anavim in the plural. That I-M ending is the plural. So the anav, the anavim, are those who are humble, but it also means lowly, it means meek, it means poor, it means gentle. It means those who are oppressed socially, economically, the ones who are marginalized, vulnerable, powerless, the ones who are on the outside looking in. Right? The word that Jesus probably used in Aramaic, not the Hebrew word, in Betan, means those who are bowed down by some outside force, persons, circumstances, situations in life, the ones that are bowed down, the ones that now realize their powerlessness. But it's more than just this. If you take a look, both those who wait for the Lord and the humble will inherit the land. Do you see that? All these connections, we can't lose them because they're giving us clues to where Jesus is really going with this. If he says that those who wait for the Lord and the humble inherit the land, he's equating those two phrases. Both of them are the same. And this is where the idea of the anavim really comes into play in Jewish culture. Because it's the same concept. To wait patiently, to cease from anger, even in the presence of wickedness, even in the presence of someone who is oppressing you. Not to return evil for evil, to be able to just patiently wait, to return good for evil. To just be vulnerable, to let these things go, not to fret, not to worry. This is the Anavim. Those who life has bowed down in one way or another, either they're born into that station or it happened to them over time. But they are people 
who fully depend on God for everything that they have. To get to that place that you have nothing left. Get to that place where it's just God who will sustain all your needs. To understand that waiting for that sustenance, waiting for that provision, not trying to pound the square peg into the round hole and make things fit, but just be there. These are the ones who inherit the land. And in that Jewish phrase, it means to have a place to stand. The land was everything to the ancient peoples. The land was where they could raise their crops. The land was where they could raise their flocks. The land was sustenance to them. To have a place to stand, to live richly, was everything to this people. And what Jesus is saying, you will have that if you are anavim. This is what he's trying to get. They're not fighting to create their own reality. They're flowing with God's reality. If you're looking at what Jesus calls his followers, it's usually in the diminutive. Have you ever noticed that? He calls them little ones. He calls them little flock. He calls them children. He's always talking to them as if they were in this state because he's in that state. And if you think about it, Jesus' whole ministry really could be a primer on just how you become anavim. To him, Anavim was everything. This attitude toward life, this way of seeing and living life, building on this long tradition. If you think about it, Mary was Anavim, right? Poor young girl. Joseph was Anavim. They got together, they raised Jesus as Anavim. In their poverty, in their lowly station, never getting second glasses from anyone of importance living their lives, waiting on God's sustenance, waiting on God's provision. If you read the Magnificat, which is often called the Magnificat, at the beginning of Luke, where she says her famous prayer as Gabriel is giving her the gift of Jesus. It's all about that. I am lowly. You know, I don't deserve these things, but I gratefully accept everything that the Lord has to give. This is on a beam. This is that tradition. This is that understanding. And everything that Jesus is trying to tell us is trying to get that across. How do you define this? What does this look like? What does it look like in your life? The Beatitudes. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We just talked about that one. Anavim. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Anavim. Those who are bowed down. Those who see the rhythms of life and patiently walk through them. Not trying to hide the hurt, not trying to hide the pain, but entering into the mourning process for themselves, in community with each other. They will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. We've talked about this. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Again, this sense of anavim. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Maybe peacemaker is one that's difficult for us because we think of someone running in and stopping a fight. But that's not the sense here of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who shows up day after day working silently in the background like a farmer, tending crops, tending soil, watching for wind and weather, connecting with the land, and realizing that once he or she has done everything that they can, all they can do is sit back and wait for that first green shoot to come out of the ground because that part's not under their control. Anavim. Everything Jesus is trying to do is to get us there. When he talks later in, in Matthew 5 about if someone slaps you on your right cheek, 
present the other on the left cheek, present the right cheek, whichever cheek it was, you know? And in other words, don't return evil for evil. If someone has done something to you, still return kindness for evil. See if you can destroy your enemies by turning them into friends. If someone sues you for your shirt, he says, give him your coat also. If someone forces you to go one mile, as was the custom under Jewish, uh, under Roman impression, go the second mile. You see where he's going with all of this? Love the enemy who persecutes you. Love the one that you don't understand. Do right by them, no matter what they're doing to you. Anavim. All of these traits, all of this attitude that is so counter to our survival instinct, so counter to the programs for happiness and survival that we put in place for ourselves through the years. If we can take that and we can turn it around, Jesus is saying, we're going to have rest for our souls in a way that we can't understand otherwise. I wanted to read a little bit from Luke 14 because these are just the aphorisms, the short sayings that Jesus has. They're peppered throughout the New Testament. But then he tells parables, he tells stories that are also illustrating the same points. Take a look at Luke 14, starting at verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. So can you just picture that? He's going to a dinner party. And remember, these were, these were you reclined at table. You didn't sit at table. But there were still places of honor. The place where the host sat to the right and the left and then in descending order, kind of like a head table would be. And here they are jostling and trying to get in there and get to the good place. And Jesus is watching him. You can imagine kind of that wry sort of smile on his face as he's just kind of watching him. He's shaking his head a little bit. All right, here we go. And he says to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Portraits of Anavim. When his followers come to him and they're fighting about who's going to sit on his left and right hand in the the kingdom, what does he do? He brings the child up and shows them. He says, unless you can become like this, Anavim. We've talked so much about Talia in here, the Aramaic word for child, which also means bondservant or domestic slave. It's the same concept, Anavim. That complete dependence, that love and devotion toward the ways of God blowing through your life. This is what he's trying to get across to us. Next one, Luke 18. He also told this parable to some people who trusted themselves in themselves that they were righteous. And that's important. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Not gratitude, not grateful for their position, entitled to their position because they earned it, right? Trusting in themselves for their righteousness, viewing others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this poor slob over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Anavim. Jesus talking about the prodigal son. You all know the story of the prodigal son. What is really the crux of the prodigal son? It is a journey from arrogance to anavim. Think about it. The young man, in his arrogance, basically tells his father that you're as good as dead to me. Just give me the money that you would give me if you had died and let me go. And the father does, which is unheard of in that culture. He should have been stoned. But the father gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he loses it all and finds himself on Avim, one who has become bowed down, one who has become oppressed by circumstances in life. And in the clarity of that journey, from arrogance, the illusion of self-sustenance, to Anavim, he realizes even the hired hands of my father's estate have it better than I do. And he comes back with a completely different attitude. His brother remains untransformed. His brother remains entitled. But his younger brother has made the journey. And that makes all the difference all the difference in the world. There's one other story that I wanted to tell you, but I wanted to tell you in a little different way because I ran across this paraphrase of this parable of Jesus to try to update it. See what you think. A Bible professor approached Jesus wishing to test his teaching. He asked, Teacher, what should I do to obtain God's life that never ends? And Jesus said, What does it say in the Bible? How do you understand it? The professor answered, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was impressed. And he replied, This is correct. Live this out, and eternal life is yours. But knowing he had not lived this out and had no intention to, but wishing to justify himself, the Bible teacher said to Jesus, But really, who is my neighbor? Jesus sighed and responded, There was a man traveling from Washington, D.C. to New York, and some terrorists kidnapped him, stripped his clothes off, and beat him half to death, leaving him by the side of the road helpless. Now it so happened that a Mennonite pastor passed by, and he saw him. But thinking he was a homeless bum, he ignored him and went on his way. Then a Baptist worship leader drove by the same spot, but since he was in a hurry to make it on time to his worship service, he also ignored him and made it to the service on time. Then a Muslim drove by and saw the man lying on the side of the road. Compassion welled up in his heart, and he stopped, got out his first aid kit, covered his wounds, put him in his car, getting blood all over the new seats, and drove him to the hospital. There he told the doctor, if he doesn't have any insurance, here's my credit card number. Just take it off my account. Now, Jesus concluded, which of these was neighbor to the man attacked by terrorists? And the professor said, the Muslim, the one who had compassion on him. Jesus smiled and looked him right in the eye and said, now you do the same. A little bit different spin, huh? It takes one to know one, we sometimes say. It takes an anavim to know and to value another anavim. See, we look at the anavim around us. We look at the homeless. We look at the, 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 the indigent. 
we look at the immigrants, illegal immigrants, we look at all these people that are sometimes inconvenient, they sometimes mess with our state of mind, mess with the smell, mess with whatever they met. We don't value them, we don't see them as people until we've taken the journey ourselves to Anavim. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Until you become Anavim yourself, you can't enter the kingdom. It's one way of putting it. You won't inherit the kingdom, another way to put it. The kingdom is not yours, another way to put it. All of those are inadequate in our language, but they're trying to get something across. To be anavim is to be kingdom. And we can never see it, enter it, inherit it, live it, until we finally can see it for what it is. Value it for what it is. We have to take the journey ourselves before we can do that. What does it take to become anavim? How do we do it? A little bit from Richard Rohr. See if he can help us out a bit. He writes, Humility and honesty are really the same thing. A humble person is simply a brutally honest person about the whole truth. You and I came along a few years ago and we're going to be gone in a few years. The only honest response to life is a humble one. Alcoholics Anonymous offers a classic definition of humility. Stark Raving honesty. you got to love that. Stark raving honesty. Humility is the ability to see what really is. To see who we really are in that reality. To strip away all the illusions. What the prodigal did in his journey was to have all the illusions stripped away. Everything that he thought he was, and he thought he was all that, everything got stripped away through the process of his journey. And what was left to him was that total dependence on his father, complete dependence at any cost. And he was able to return and become a part of that. When we finally are allowing our life to be stripped away like that, the illusions, all the things about ourselves that we think are true, to let those go, then something starts to happen within us. Brendan Manning writes this, The great weakness in the North American church at large, and certainly in my life, is our refusal to accept our brokenness. We hide it, evade it, gloss over it. We grab for the cosmetic kit and put on our virtuous face to make ourselves admirable to the public. Thus we present to others a self that is spiritually together, superficially happy and lacquered with a sense of self-deprecating humor that passes for humility. The irony is that while I do not want anyone to know that I am judgmental, lazy, vulnerable, screwed up, and afraid for fear of losing face, the face that I fear losing is the mask of the imposter, not my own. If there is a conspicuous absence of power and wisdom in the North American church, it has arisen because we have not come to terms with the tragic flaw in our lives, the brokenness that is proper to the human condition. Without that acknowledgement, there can be little power. For as Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, my power works at its best in your weakness. I know I've told this story before, 
but when I first came in contact with the recovery community some 15, 16 years ago, and I was trying to minister to them as I administered to a community church as associate pastor, I finally found a sense of coming home. I finally found a sense of mission and purpose. What I didn't realize then was that I was dealing with the Anavim. Those people who knew that they were broken, those people who knew that they needed help, those people who had recognized and admitted their powerlessness, those people for whom standing at the precipice, change was actually possible. To come into contact with those people is kind of shattering. It really changes things because we don't see that every day. People that transparent. But I realized these are the people that I wanted to work with. And it's not just addicts and alcoholics, it's all of us who have taken a journey of mistakes, of sin, if you want to call it that, of failures, of ups and downs, that have finally shown us that the self-sufficiency and the illusion of our own independence is just that, illusion. And now change becomes possible. This ability to be stark, raving, honest, why is it so valued? Why is it so vital to Jesus? Why is it so vital to AA? Brendan Manning continues, Humble people are small in their own eyes, honest about their struggles, and open to constructive criticism. Following the counsel of Jesus to take the last place, they are not shocked or offended when others put them there. They trust that they are loved, accepted, forgiven, and redeemed just as they are. Aware of their innate poverty, they throw themselves on the mercy of God with carefree abandon. Jesus said, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. In what did the, human- in what did the humility of Jesus consist? Low self-esteem? Feelings of unworthiness? Disappointment with his spiritual progress? Absurd! He was enthralled with his Father. In utter self-forgetfulness, he lived for God. The central theme in his personal life was the growing intimacy with, trust in, and love of his Abba. He lived securely in his Father's acceptance. Put that on your fridge. He lived securely in his Father's acceptance. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he reassures us. Jesus' inner life was centered in God. His communion with his Abba transformed his vision of reality, enabling him to perceive divine love towards sinners and scalawags. Perceive divine love towards sinners and scalawags. Takes one to know one, to value one. Jesus did not live from himself or for himself, but from the graciousness of the other who is incomprehensibly caring. He understood his Father's compassionate heart. See, there it is. That's the bottom line. Jesus lived securely in his Father's acceptance. He lived the trust that only comes from letting go, selling everything you have and giving it to the poor, and following the one on whom we are completely dependent, to finally see and live who you really are, to know who you really are. And finally, Manning concludes with this. Why was Jesus attracted to the unattractive? Why did he desire the undesirable and love those deemed unlovely by human standards? 
Why did he love all those losers, failures, and no accounts? Because his father does. And when you read something like that, we've got to make sure we don't say, say, he loves those people more than he loves the other ones. No. He loves everyone equally, of course. Jesus does. The Father does. But who is going to respond to a humble God? Who is going to respond to a meek and gentle God? Who is going to respond to a God who is unassuming? Only those who are unassuming themselves. Only those who are already marginalized themselves. Who see their own powerlessness and poverty themselves. It was self-selecting in Jesus' ministry, in his life. Those were the ones who came to him. The ones that were invested in power had nothing to do with him. They saw him as a threat to their power base. Of course Jesus loved them because he saw in them the possibility of change. It's not that he didn't love the others, but they needed to take that journey from arrogance to Anavim before they could see in Jesus who he really was and the depth of his promise to every single one of us. I tell you most solemnly, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, Jesus says, and whatever the Father does, the Son does too. Jesus' single-minded orientation toward his Father freed him from self-consciousness. And lost in wonder and gratefulness, he taught us the true meaning of humility. I love that. His single-minded orientation to his Father freed him from self-consciousness and lost in wonder and gratefulness, he taught us the true meaning of humility. In the Christian tradition, there are two ways to follow Jesus' way. Two ways to get to this place of the Anavim, to get to where Jesus is talking about. It's suffering and prayer. Suffering is life doing it to you. Prayer is you doing it from the inside out. But both have the same properties of stripping away all the illusions. The move through life, you know, the abrasion that happens eventually takes off all the illusion. We hope it's not just at our deathbed, but at least it's there. It's going to happen. But prayer takes us to that place. Contemplative prayer takes us to that place where we just let go of all of those things that are covering over everything that we're trying to see. That last line is the one to free ourselves from self-consciousness, from constantly thinking about ourselves, to get lost in the wonder, lost in the gratitude. This, this, this way of living life that is so difficult for us, to be free of worrying about ourselves, free of trying to be good enough all the time to be acceptable, to know that we have absolutely no power to affect God's favor, his acceptance, his love, but also to know at the same time, because we've experienced it over and over, that we don't need to do anything to affect his acceptance and love and favor. We already have it. It's already here. To see ourselves truly, honestly, as if for the first time, and at the same time to know that everything is well because our Father is exactly who Jesus said He is. And that's good news. That is the blessing of the Anavim. That is inheriting the land. That is entering kingdom. And that is rest for our souls. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would help us to value what we may not value right now. That you would help us to give poverty a chance. Not physical poverty, but a different attitude that looks at life from that perspective. From the perspective of a receiver, from the perspective of a dependent, from the perspective of a child three feet off the ground, to see life from that perspective and to realize that everything is a gift, to move into that sense of gratitude and that wonder. Or we could just stop thinking about ourselves so much and really turn that attention fully outward and be completely present in every moment. That's the freedom we're looking for. Freedom from fear. Thank you for giving us everything that we need in order to affect this. Help us on this journey. Help us to begin the journey. Help us to begin again if we've stalled out. But help us to want more. More of you every single day. Father, we thank you for your love. And we freely acknowledge we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand?